it is a very ominous event that one should really be concerned about. That's Ankar Gatte, senior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. He's speaking at the 2015 Objectivist Summer Conference in Charlotte, North Carolina. In his talk titled, Charlie Hebdo, The West and the Need to Ridicule Religion, he examines the Charlie Hebdo massacre, where 12 people, 12 cartoonists, editors, building workers, and police officers were slaughtered by Islamic totalitarians on the morning of January 7, 2015. The satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo is famous for ridiculing religion, and in particular for depicting the Islamic prophet Muhammad in cartoons. That's why they were attacked, and that attack sent a message. Here's more from Gatte. In, in sort of graphic terms, the way I think of it, unfortunately, if you've seen the movie The Untouchables with uh, Sean Connery, Kevin Costner, Robert De Niro, it's a pretty good movie, and I like some of its moral tones. And in that movie, the, what the Untouchables means is that the few police officers who are willing to go after Capone and the mob are viewed as untouchable because they're not corrupt, they won't take bribes. And then halfway through the movie, the Capone's men are able to assassinate one of the police officers in the police precinct and in an elevator. And they write on the elevator in blood, touchable. And that is the message that the Charlie Hebdo assassinations have sent to the Islamic totalitarians. Bombings, arson, vehicle rampage, suicide attacks, spree shootings, issuing fatwas, beheadings, stabbings, kidnappings, hostage-taking, hijacking, bomb threats. Religious fanatics have used many incarnations of terror, death and destruction, driven by their desire to see an Islamic state ruling over the people of the world. In his talk, Gatte singles out four of these events that were the most significant, and not necessarily because of the sheer number of people killed or some other measure of physical destruction, and not because the Islamic totalitarians who perpetrated these brutal acts would celebrate a victory of bloodshed, but because they celebrated a significant moral victory. These four events emboldened Islamic totalitarians because our response, or lack of it, signaled to the totalitarians that the United States and the West were morally weak and that their cause was therefore achievable. This time on Rise and Fall, we'll examine those four events, the Iranian hostage crisis, the Salman Rushdie affair, September 11th, and the Charlie Hebdo massacre. We'll look at these events through commentary from philosopher Ayn Rand, philosopher Leonard Peikoff, Ayn Rand Institute fellow and foreign policy expert Alain Journo, and of course more from Ankar Gatte. Although the particulars of the four situations were all different, we see those experts saying the same thing. That when it comes to standing up for what is right against the Islamic totalitarians, the West is afflicted with a serious self-esteem problem. And if we don't stand up for Western values, the values that make our lives great, and in particular, the right to free speech, we can only expect more attacks in the future. We can expect to lose our liberties and our freedoms. Okay, first, the Iranian hostage crisis. On November 4, 1979, 52 American diplomats and citizens were taken hostage at the United States Embassy in Tehran. That's Iran's capital city. Those hostages were terrorized and held for 444 days by Iranian students, 
a group belonging to the Muslim student followers of the imam's line. The hostages described beatings, being bound, and were threatened repeatedly with execution. The taking of the hostages was widely seen as a blow to the United States, a blow that was delivered by totalitarians. In 1980, philosopher Ayn Rand was asked the following question. What would be the proper course of action for the U.S. in the Iranian crisis, and how should we go about getting our hostages back? Here's how she answered. Never to allow a country to get to the situation. It is certainly the fault of our foreign policy, and at present, there's nothing they can do that's going to be right. It's too late. If you want my personal opinion, and that's dangerous because it's an opinion. I'm not the president, and I'm not in government. But just as an observer, if they didn't march with force the first or second day afterwards, anything they do after that is no good, and it will take us years to live it down. Gatte describes what it felt like to observe the paralysis that struck the United States in the wake of the hostage-taking. He remembers what it was like to see the ongoing crisis play out. He remembers seeing footage of the hostages on the television as a child. The first, and because it's the first, the worst because it sets the precedent for everything else, was the seizure in Iran of the American embassy the parading day after day on the news of the hostages, the belittling of America. And if you can, I was nine or ten at the time and watching the news, and the sense just of, of being depressed and, and that something has been lost about the West and about America, that pervaded that episode. And Ayn Rand said in a, a very prophetic statement that if we didn't view that as an act of war and march on Tehran, in the days following, you will not live that down for decades. And unfortunately, we have not lived it down. It would be hard to. Each night, images of anti-American mobs shouting and snarling, death to America, as they marched back and forth in front of the embassy in Tehran were shown on television. A television news program dedicated to coverage of the crisis sprang up. A rolling count of the days that the hostages remained in humiliation, terrified for their lives, was displayed floating beside the newscaster. That program was later to be called Nightline. The crisis, day by day, became the symbol of the molded over impotence of the West to do anything to stand up for ourselves and bring the hostages home. While many hoped that President Jimmy Carter's timid, deferential approach would avoid inflaming and antagonizing Iran, we were accomplishing the opposite. The spectacle of Western nations bowing in submission to Iran, night after night, was an encouragement to Iran and to Islamic totalitarians worldwide. The West was afflicted with a moral paralysis. And the next event makes clear both what was at stake and what we can expect to lose if we don't stand up for it. The Salman Rushdie Affair. That's the second event that Gatte lists, an event that was significantly emboldening to Islamic totalitarians. In 1989, philosopher Leonard Peikoff was asked about the Salman Rushdie affair in a Q&A at the Ford Hall Forum. During your talk, you mentioned uh, the Rushdie affair in passing. Could you comment on that a little more extensively? The Rushdie affair, yeah. <clears throat> I think the Rushdie affair was 
perhaps the worst thing that has happened uh, to uh, the West, in my opinion, since the New Deal. It is the worst, most ominous event uh, that I could ever remember. The greatest indication of the corruption and the weakness of the West and the greatest threat to the future of the West. I feel very passionately about this issue precisely because of the impotence of the government in response to that. Here's a little refresher on the Salman Rushdie affair. In 1988, novelist Salman Rushdie published The Satanic Verses, a novel inspired, at least in part, by the life of Muhammad. Many in the Muslim world were angry over the book. They accused Rushdie of blasphemy, and some acted with violence. Bombings and executions were perpetrated as a result of this outpouring of Muslim anger. In 1989, Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran issued a fatwa, ordering Muslims to seek out Rushdie and to kill him. Just weeks after the fatwa was issued, Cody's Books, that's a small independent bookstore in Berkeley, California, they had the novel prominently displayed in their window. They were firebombed in the middle of the night, and an undetonated pipe bomb was later discovered in their store. Heroically, the staff of the store unanimously decided to continue to display and sell the book, but many American bookstores pulled a novel from their shelves in fear of being bombed or, or attacked themselves. By the way, that fatwa remains in place to this day. Now this man, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, has engendered nationwide terror. He has, if he gets away with it, and it looks like he will, established a graver blow against the First Amendment than anything, than any anti-pornography uh, law, than any, the worst law you can imagine. Because he has laid it down and our government has accepted the proposition that it is tolerable to threaten the authors, the publishers, or the readers of certain controversial material with death and nothing, whatever, will be done in response. The Rushdie affair put into stark relief the contrast between the core Western value of freedom of speech, the idea that no one should be killed or face a serious threat of being killed for what they say or what they write, as one historian put it, against the standpoint of Islamic totalitarians, who believe that no one should be permitted to insult the Prophet Muhammad. It's clear that the Ayatollah and Islamic totalitarians who reacted with violence towards Rushdie and anyone who wanted to read the book, it's clear that they were motivated by ideas that are anathema to freedom of speech, and they acted to kill those who were saying things that they didn't want to be said. But it was the failure of the government of the United States to stand up and morally defend the right of freedom of speech that Peikoff argues was a graver blow to the First Amendment than the totalitarians could ever deliver. There is no more future for the United States if this kind of an action can take place because it amounts to saying America has completely abdicated. It's capitulated. Anybody, any pipsqueak foreigner with a hit squad can stop anybody from saying anything. And uh, this is what has become of the land of the free and the home of the brave. And it is a terrifying, awesome spectacle. I never thought I would live to see such a thing. It's the worst thing I have ever seen, bar none, in my adult uh, lifetime. Peikoff argues that the government has set a terrible precedent in their lack of response to the Rushdie affair. 
that they've opened the door to any group shutting down an unpopular idea with the threat of violence. And by doing so, they've encouraged more attacks. He also makes the point that it is unpopular ideas, in particular, that need to be protected by the First Amendment, and that the Rushdie affair was one way in which it was glaringly obvious that the government would not stand up for Americans who have ideas that are unpopular. The only way that unpopular ideas, the only thing left that isn't either preempted by the establishment and closed, the only thing, or completely blandized out like TV, the only thing left is publishers and bookstores who are commercial businessmen and they will not take the risk and you can't ask them to take the risk if controversy means death. And since the government has abdicated, that is the position. And when that goes, when the bookstores and the publishers start, as they have no alternative now but to do, you know, they're not going to come out and say openly, we were, are going to stop publishing. They'll just say, I don't think this book really has a good chance, you know, and so on. They'll dress it up. When that happens, that is the end. There's no more free speech then. You don't have to have a government. You don't have to have censorship. You don't have to have policemen or brown shirts. You can thank George Bush for the whole thing because he had the means of stopping it. And I say to you, and I'm not Nostradamus, it is going to happen. Not just it might, it has to happen. I just can't predict the time scale, and I hope and pray I'm dead before it does. Does that answer your question? I've only played you a few clips from Peacock's answer. He goes on for over 10 minutes. And after he's finished, he's met with an incredibly long round of applause. If you stay tuned, I'm going to play this round of applause for you in its entirety at the end of the podcast. But now, the third event, September 11th. I had just woken up and turned the TV on, and like millions of other Americans, I was watching the screen grief-stricken and shocked. That's Ayn Rand Institute fellow and foreign policy expert Alon Jurno. I wanted to talk to him about September 11th because that's a subject that he's written extensively about. In the interview, he talks about this idea that the totalitarians were morally emboldened by this event. Here's more from our conversation. What did the attacks represent to you? The attacks represented a obviously large scale, but also symbolic attack by a movement that had been attacking America for years at different levels of sophistication. That's the Islamic totalitarian movement. And 9-11 was for them a triumph. They managed to inflict real harm on America, something they'd been planning to do, had declared as their goal for many years, and here they had achieved it. Uh, they managed to kill thousands of people and target specifically the symbols of American power, both Wall Street and Washington, political, economic power, which to them is an affront because it, it's, it stands in direct rebuke to their doctrine, which is that piety, that belief in totalitarian Islam is the means to power. So here they were affirming their own doctrine in action. By tearing us down. Exactly. So what, what should we have done? What was the response that was needed? This is the subject of the book I put together, Winning the Unwinnable War. 
the essentials are we needed to recognize the nature of this movement, the fact that it is backed by state sponsors who have been pushing it for many years and funding it and training its, its uh, what we, people call terrorists, and that in order to eliminate this threat, this menace, we needed to target the state sponsors, in chiefly Iran and Saudi Arabia, but there were others as well. And in doing so, be proudly and assertively explaining that we regard this movement as morally evil and that our goal is to demoralize this group so that they believe that their ideal, as grandiose as it is, of a worldwide dominion under Islamic law is unachievable, that their cause is lost. If we did that, and the book articulates the steps we would have to take to achieve that goal, and I think it was entirely achievable uh, 15 years ago, and in some ways it could still be done today. Had we done that, we would not be facing the menace that we do today, which is stronger than it was before 9-11. So are you saying that that uh, our lack of response or set the stage for the things to come, like the Charlie Hebdo massacre? Definitely, and w one of the consequences of our failed policy response, which is what I talk about in the book, is that we appeased instead of oppose this enemy, and we enabled it to gain more power in the Middle East. This is the legacy of Bush's policy. As we failed to defeat it, we also encouraged it, and I definitely think that the attacks of 9-11 and then practically a decade of failed American response in the Middle East led the Islamists to believe that, yes, their cause is achievable and that they should be enforcing their doctrines in the West. So the attack on Charlie Hebdo was an attack intended to say, you must live under our view of what is blasphemy and our view of what is appropriate to say and not to say we repudiate the freedom of speech. And I think that I, the idea that they could do that was encouraged by this long string of attacks that they succeeded in implementing and the fact that they have, they, they have grounds to believe their cause is still achievable. So I with, after the Charlie Hebdo massacre, there's attacks in Paris, San Bernardino, uh, and now most recently Brussels. Is this what we can expect to happen in the future? What the precise shape of the attacks will look like, it's hard to say, but will there be more attacks at different scales, different actors, different locations? I think that's true. That is something we should expect. And it's primarily the result of the fact that we have not defeated this movement and we have let the followers of Islamic totalitarianism believe that their cause is achievable. And this is a movement driven by the desire to achieve what they regard as a moral ideal. And so long as they believe that that's doable, they'll keep pursuing it. And I put the Charlie Hebdo assassinations as the fourth one into that category. And I thought at the time, this is gonna give them tremendous inspiration. You're gonna see attacks immediately following as you saw in Copenhagen on Lars Vilks, and as we saw now in Garland, Texas, at the cartoon contest. Because what that singled to them was here was people who've been on a hit list for years who had some 
amount of government protection. You can argue about how well they were protected at Charlie Hebdo in Paris, but they had some uh, protection and they were able to assassinate them nevertheless. Gatte, in his talk, puts the Charlie Hebdo assassinations as fourth on the list of events that significantly embolden Islamic totalitarians. The assassinations reminded him of that scene in The Untouchables. Because even though the staff at Charlie Hebdo had some measure of police protection, and even though those in the Western world say that they stand up for the right to free speech, it was as if the totalitarians, like the mobsters in the movie, had written touchable in blood on the wall. What is touchable? Our ideals. Gatte says that although some people simply dismiss the cartoons as obscene, they represent something deeper and much more important our ability to criticize religion. In a fight against religion, you need to be able to do this. You need the freedom to do it, and you need to actually do it. And that, in regard to Islam, is disappearing or has disappeared. So that is part of what is at stake and part of what is being lost, I think, today. And if you look at it just in terms of what it says about the West, and if in just sense of life terms, I mean, my view is, if you've got a bunch of dark age mentalities running around, publishing hit lists and assassinating people, telling them what you can and cannot say, what you can and cannot think, what you can and cannot draw, and if your immediate response is not, F you, and I'm saying this, and I'm printing this, and I'm drawing this, if that's not individually and collectively if that's not the reaction, I think something is really wrong. So as a citizen, not as the president of the United States, not as someone who is involved in government or foreign policy, what can we do to stand up for the right of free speech? To make it clear that the Western way of life is moral, that we will not cower in the face of those who want to bring us down? Well, after the Charlie Hebdo massacre, Gatte invited anyone who values his life and freedom to stand with the victims by posting and publicizing the cartoons to make very public the content that the totalitarians didn't want us to see. And when it comes to everyday life, what can we do to stand up to the religious leaders and their faithful followers who threaten and murder individuals for daring to speak? Openly, proudly, self-confidently declaring that one is an atheist. To make it seem culturally because it is, that being an atheist is a normal, to be expected, rational position. I mean, I think the attitude, one's attitude, what you should convey when someone asks you, are you an atheist? It should be, yeah, I'm an atheist, aren't you? <clears throat> Give support and sanctuary to people who are trying to get rid of their religion. And when we're in now a period of a resurgence in the legitimacy of faith, I think it's important to be outspoken as an atheist, not militant. Be militant for positive things, but outspoken as an atheist. And it, it, and it has done good things in the, in the US already, I think, as a result of the new atheists pushing this, and it would do more if more people would do this. You've been listening to Rise and Fall, How Ideas Move the World. This podcast is created by me, Amanda Maxim, and the Ayn Rand Institute. Music was by Poddington Bear and Chris Zabriskie. What did you think? 
give me a call on our fall line at 888-673-5553. Ask a question or leave an answer. You might hear yourself on the air. A new book was just released by Alain Journo and Ankar Gatte titled Failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism from George W. Bush to Barack Obama and Beyond. In it, you'll find a series of quick essays on America's response to terrorist attacks, including September 11th, the Orlando nightclub shooting, the Charlie Hebdo massacre, among others, and America's relationship to countries that house and encourage totalitarians, what needs to be done, and what's stopping us from getting rid of the threat of Islamic totalitarianism for good. That's failing to confront Islamic totalitarianism. Find out how you can defend your right to free speech by visiting einrand.org. And more episodes of this podcast are available at einrand.org/riseandfall. If you enjoy this podcast and you want to hear more episodes, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. That's your recommendation, and it's valuable. Thank you. And now for that remarkable round of applause. Does that answer your question? I don't think we should end on that note. <laughs>